Welcome to HEQ&A, the podcast of History of Education Quarterly. I'm your host, HEQ co-editor Jack Schneider. Every few weeks, we'll dive into recent work from the journal, asking authors how their projects challenge or extend what we know about a topic, exploring what's interesting and surprising about it, and then taking a step back to consider broader implications. In the second half of the show, we turn our sights to teaching, so if you're an educator, make sure to stick around until the end. And now, let's hear from one of our authors. Uh, my name is Jeremy Murphy, and I am a doctoral candidate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And my article is entitled From Teacher Improvement to Teacher Turnover, Unintended Consequences of School Reform in Quincy, Massachusetts, 1872 to 1893. My article revisits the Quincy method, which is an early progressive education reform in 19th century Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, the Quincy method was pioneered by Francis Parker, who uh, Dewey would later call the father of progressive education. In this reform, it was really focused on kind of breaking the lockstep of rote mechanical instruction in schools that characterized so many schools at the time. Uh, I was really focused on hands-on instruction. Play and discovery came before grammatical rules and mathematical formulas. Parker was even rumored to have said uh, that all teachers should burn the spelling books, though I think that's apocryphal. But in revisiting this reform and focusing on the teachers, this article offers a very different story and one of unintended consequences in Quincy. Focusing specifically on the town's teachers and uh, the reform tells a wider story about the Massachusetts teacher labor market and how that interacted with pedagogic innovation at the time. That teacher market uh, was characterized by an oversupply of what school committees called ordinary teachers. Uh, so there were lots of teachers, but they were often poorly trained or had no experience. And so what the Quincy method did was gave teachers some purchase over this market as well as districts. So teachers used their experience that they had accrued in Quincy uh, and that expertise to secure higher paying positions in, in wealthier districts elsewhere. And districts started to then use Quincy as a kind of recruiting ground to replenish their ranks of teachers. So I argue that while this is still, I think, in a lot of ways, a successful early progressive education reform, it really instantiates this kind of problematic interaction between the Massachusetts teacher labor market and instructional reform. The typical Quincy reform story is this uh, story about these noble school men who look around them and see that their schools are failing. Uh, and so they begin this extensive search for a superintendent who can turn them around and hire their first superintendent, Francis Parker, who ends up being quite radical. And then the schools attract all sorts of attention. Visitors stream into classrooms each year to bear witness to the, the town's star teachers. And it really becomes kind of a central hub for learning progressive education practices. What this paper does by, by showing the perspective of the teachers themselves, it really tells a story that goes from, like the title suggests, from teacher improvement to teacher turnover. Eventually, the schools become totally overwhelmed by turnover and end up losing 20% of their teaching force each year because teachers in Quincy are paid so poorly. And so it becomes very much a story about teacher mobility, where teachers end up using what they're learning in Quincy as a means to advance themselves professionally. And districts really end up doing the, end up doing the same thing. 
I, I think what is unique uh, and interesting about the Quincy method in particular is the fact that what we see there is happening in kind of ordinary public schools at the time. This is progressive education that's not taking place in kind of the isolated classroom here or there or outside public education entirely. What we see is an entire network of, of schools transforming the way that they do education. And it's really sustained by these two structures, teachers meetings, which are happening regularly once a week, where teachers are exchanging practices, where they're where they're doing demonstration lessons, hearing lectures, and training classes, where uh, the schools are really training teachers in the Quincy method from within, with the hopes of then having stability in their schools, which they actually don't end up having because so many teachers end up leaving. But that in and of itself is quite unique. I think what's also unique here and interesting is the fact that we see teachers and districts using innovation as a means to advance themselves. In this way, it extends scholarship on women's school teachers. There's a rich literature that talks about women's school teachers using the classroom, using normal schools in order to gain financial independence, in order to gain uh, more education. But here we actually see them using progressive education teaching methods in order to secure better lives for themselves. And, and really a similar phenomenon happening among districts and how districts are then negotiating innovation in, in their teacher selection practices. One broader implication here is that this is kind of a adds to a, a larger story about school reform. It provides further evidence to support the theses of historians like Larry Cuban, like David Tyack, in showing that absent these larger structural changes, pedagogic change can't really happen. And it can only remain kind of an individual practice rather than a larger structural change. Something I should add is that when teachers end up leaving Quincy, they are more often than not entering new districts that are poorly organized to sustain what they learned in Quincy. So they are leaving Quincy for these higher paying jobs. They uh, have this expertise and this progressive education is now penetrating mainstream classrooms. And yet it fades because they are unable to sustain it because those structures aren't there in these new districts that they're in. And so it really just remains the individual teacher in the isolated classroom practicing that progressive education rather than a larger systemic change. The second half of the show is dedicated to thinking about teaching. We ask authors to put on their guest lecturer hats and take students into the weeds. What should they pay attention to, methodologically speaking? What else should they be reading if they want to take a deep dive into the historiography? And where are their opportunities for further research? So I began this study in a historical research methods course. And needless to say, it extended far beyond that semester two and a half years ago. But I think one of the things that, that made me most uncomfortable with doing historical research, a lot of the other work that I do is qualitative research, is the fact that you can't sit down with your subjects and, and talk to them in great detail and hear their decision-making firsthand. And so I think that there's kind of a, uh, an inherent uh, uncertainty to this work and that we have to make all sorts of inferences about decision-making of, of the actors that we're discussing. I try to do that here by to, to offer a fuller portrait of Quincy teachers through this triangulation of, of sources that I think students should pay attention to. School reports from across the state, not just in Quincy, but across other towns too, to see how they were talking about the Quincy method. Uh, annual reports from the Massachusetts Board of Education, education periodicals and local newspapers, 
just relying on simply one of those resources, one of those sources wouldn't allow for the nuanced textured story that I'm trying to tell. But interestingly, through all of that work, I, I really did not come across many firsthand accounts written by teachers who were doing the Quincy method firsthand. One source led me to another source that it characterized as a memoir written by a teacher in Quincy. And this was going to be the perfect ideal source. And I got there, it was a series of columns in the Journal of Education, and it really just recycled the same story that we heard from Quincy's promoters, uh, which, you know, we can, we can analyze why that is further, but oftentimes we're having to make all sorts of inferences without hearing that decision-making firsthand, and that's quite difficult. So if people want to take a dive into the historiography, I would recommend starting with Lawrence Kremen's The Transformation of the School, Progressivism in American Education offers a really nice primer for progressive education, uh, but it really doesn't focus a whole lot on teachers themselves and their experiences. And so to gain a better sense of that, uh, there are some newer texts that I would recommend. Uh, Salary Gregory Colstead's Teaching Children Science Hands-On Nature Study in North America. A lot of the work that's in that is about progressive teaching methods happening outside of the mainstream. Uh, but then there's also Sarah Ann Carter's new book, uh, Object Lessons, How 19th Century Americans Learned to Make Sense of the Material World, which really dissects uh, one of these early educational innovations um, and kind of charts its progress in history. Uh, so those are some, some recommendations for further reading. I would really love to see researchers similarly revisit some other reforms that are held in high esteem in progressive education and look at them specifically from teachers' perspectives. Because I think that once we do that, we're going to gain a very different story than we normally would. Progressive education is often dominated by these giant names, names like Dewey, and to a lesser extent, Francis Parker. But I think once we train our eyes on teachers specifically, we get a much more complicated view of the history. So I'd love to see further research kind of chart these trends further and look into how teachers and districts alike were using innovation to inform their practices throughout history. To learn more, check out History of Education Quarterly Online. The journal is published by Cambridge University Press, and it's carried by most academic libraries. You should also be sure to follow HEQ's Twitter handle, at HistEdQuarterly, which regularly sends out free, read-only versions of articles, and the show's Twitter handle, at H-E-Q and A. And don't forget, subscribe to the show so you don't miss forthcoming episodes. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. H-E-Q and A is produced at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Our producer is Jennifer Berkshire, and our theme music is by Ryan Shaw. I'm Jack Schneider. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>